backwards. Is that correct? Why would I do it wrong? So that is correct. When you're looking at movement now in terms of position along the axon, remember I told you that the axotangential, if you were to plot it, goes this way then right. Okay? If you were to plot it out, the leading edge is the rising phase, right? So from left to right, as the axe potential is being conducted, right, you were to draw the axe potential, it would be backwards. Why? Leading edge is where sodium is coming in. See, I put in a little capacitance charging. <laughs> All right? So, if you look at what I have here for propagation, all right, then obviously sodium is going in here and potassium is going out. Here, I'll put it in on that side, okay? And there's your undershoot. So when we draw an axe potential, normally just, if I just said go do it, right? You would be able to do it. And I'm sure you probably put that undershoot in. That's a time function. That's as if you were sitting at one point here, right? And then over time, you ask what happened in sequence. And what happened in sequence over time is that. Think about it. It's supposed to help you understand. Okay, don't be confused by this because one is what's happening across this piece of axon right here, okay? The other one is what's happening at that point over time. What's happening at that point over time, as the exponential comes along, it charges the membrane. This sodium it has, comes in, potassium goes out, and then there's an undershoot. But in terms of the position along here, okay, this is where it's happening, of it greatly expanded. So, if you look then at what's shown in terms of propagation, what I'd like to do is just review myelination. Myelination is an extraordinary adaptation. It's not, it's, it's clear what it does. It greatly increases conduction, speed of the exponential moving, okay? And it does that by greatly facilitating propagation because remember we talked about how this myelination adds this terrific insulator over the axon, okay? And its distance is perfectly in register with how far the increase in forward movement of current is to excite the next patch of membrane. And remember, in those little nodes, those patches of membrane, okay, that's where you have the highest concentration of the sodium potassium channels. But see here, the sodium is coming in. Sodium's coming in here, that's the plus, and the potassium's going out. So that's basically what I just drew here, sodium and potassium. But if you were overlay the axe potential, that's the way it would look, okay? So myelination came with, um, with vertebrates, and it's not clear what early stage led to this. You don't see like some kind of coating over axons before that. You could imagine maybe there were just a bunch of cells around the, uh, randomly around axons and that helped and then eventually evolved to myelin. Because again, what this is, is this is typically a single cell, okay, that's extruded some membrane and it's wrapped it around so tightly, there is no, there's, 
fundamentally no cytoplasm. This is just all liquid. Okay? And again, it's spaced perfectly. And what's intriguing is it's spaced perfectly based on the diameter of that axon. So you can replicate this in cell culture. You can take myelinating cells. It's usually done with Schwann cells from the periphery. Okay? And in that culture, if you have different size um, axon diameters, which you might have, if you have an heterogeneous cell culture of nerve cells, the Schwann cells will actually myelinate those cells and will myelinate them, again, exactly the distance that is needed. Life infantry. I mean, it's really an extraordinary adaptation because the impact on conduction, that is how fast active vegetables can go, is night and day. This allowed, when this came in with phylogeny, it came in, I believe, with the sharks. It came in with animals that needed to move a lot faster than other animals. Okay, and so that speed greatly increased the, the motility because you got to get the signals down to run the, the muscles right as fast as you can if you're going to increase locomotion. And there's other reasons as well because it's all through the brain. So, so what question? Yeah. So what you're saying is that the thicker the axon, which the would, diameter of the axon, the yeah. diameter of the axon, yeah. the, uh, in which the faster the signal propagates, yeah. right. the shorter the swan cells that are surrounding it, uh, surrounding now, that. It's adjusted to this what's called space constant. How far that current can go, depending on that diameter, that will dictate. The, yeah, still being able to uh, drive this part of the membrane over threshold to get a new axe potential. So there, if you think, yeah, maybe they'd be shorter, you wouldn't need as much. All right, they end up they end up being longer because you know because of the the fact that you have a lower resistance and a larger diameter membrane, that current can go even farther. Oh, I right. Know. So it might be counterintuitive. So everybody on that question, right? You think that the bigger the diameter, that's already conducting faster than its neighbor that's smaller, okay? But it's the resistance is lower, so you get almost a two for one. It's going to be even longer because it allows for that current to go as far as it can to activate the membrane. And so there is some evidence, or at least some indication, that as it starts to myelinate and accidentals are are happening, that that active membrane there dictates. The length, so the so the myelinating cell. So again, a Schwann cell in the periphery or the oligodendrocyte in the central nervous system, spinal cord and brain, right? That somehow that cell is is, is also sensing the activity, and so that's actually another thing that's interesting. Even though this is just pure lipid here, it's not showing it, but there is a cell body attached, and so there are signals that somehow dictate that. So that's that would be an interesting topic, by the way. To delve into more, if you wanted to investigate that for a time. Anyway, let's move on. I'd love to cover, so I just really want to be sure that we go over this because the, the fundamental concept here is that you're, you know, the membrane is an insulator, but it's not a perfect insulator. Okay, and so this is now adding just enough more insulation to make a difference in terms of that current flow. And by insulating, it's insulating, um, you know, the loss of current through the membrane, in a manner of speaking. Okay. The ions don't flow through the membrane normally without channels. Remember, we, we have that as a dictum, right? So the ions 
they, they're positively charged, they can't cross. Remember, the membrane isn't, is actually not just an insulator, and fundamentally, this is true of almost all insulators, they're also capacitors. So as charge would go up, as it's moving down, the axon is charged, is starting to charge up here, it's charging up the capacitor, so there is some loss because on the other side of the capacitor, ions are moving. Okay. So, it, so it's weird. I mean, this, this, this fundamentally works. When you have an insulator, two plates, there's a gap there. Okay. Electrons, ions can't move across that gap. All right. And you can have that in any electrical circuit. Almost every electrical circuit of anything that you have has capacitors. So the charge comes in on one side and it's ejected from the other side. It's sensed across that, um, that gap. This provides for that insulation. Okay. It also is going to affect the capacitance as well. We're going to not worry about that. So what happens? It jumps along. All right. So that's obviously a major adaptation to speed up the, um, you know, the, the, the action potential. We talked about the diameter having an, impact, an inverse impact on the resistance, and the bigger the, um, the diameter, the lower the resistance, the farther the current's going to flow, the faster the axon. And the other thing is the density of channels. So now I need to drill down and tell you um, what's really going on. And I already gave you a hint of this. So during the axon potential, it isn't that every single sodium channel senses the voltage and then starts to open and lets current flow and then closes at the top of the X potential. We often say that, but that's not what happens. What happens is that for individual sodium channels, so this is showing red inward current through one channel. And look what happens. They just open for, for a really brief period of time. I know there's no time scale here, but this is is um, basically accurate to the X potential. Remember, the X potential is only like a millisecond, right? So for microseconds, a individual channel opens and closes, okay? just like that. So what's happening when you drive an X potential is you're, you're basically driving more and more of these channels to open. They're not opening longer, okay? They're not opening necessarily any sooner. They open basically um, as a stochastic process, semi-random, okay? So, when you sum them all together, then you get this nice, and you're able to just isolate that sodium influx, and you isolate that overall current, what we call the macroscopic current, the sum total, then that's what you see. But it's made up of these little guys, okay? And you see they can vary a little bit, all right? Now, they can be regulated so that the open time can vary, but that's not during the, the axon potential, that's some, or some other signal coming to the cell. Okay. It could be something like phosphorylation. For now, we're gonna ignore that. But by and large, within a range, it's pretty tight, okay? Two of them can, can open at the same time, or three, so they can really sum on top of each other. But really, you have dozens, this is just showing a few, but you really have a large number of them opening, basically at random. And as the voltage starts to rise with the action potential, more and more and more of them engage. Now in terms of shutting them off with an activation, that's more unified. So some of them are already, well, like this one's long closed before your top, the action potential. But once you get to the top of the action potential, the ones that are open, they're gone, they're done. Okay, so in activation, 
is quick. It shuts everybody down. But activation is, is really random, and it's just a numbers game. And same true on the outward current, now shown here as outward for, for potassium. Now, potassium currents, the voltage-gated potassium currents involved with bringing that potential back down are a little bit complicated. Um, fundamentally, there seem to be at least two, maybe three different types. There's one major um, channel that operates, but you can see they have very, very different times when they open and close. And many of them open for a really long time. Okay, so it's a little different story, a lot more heterogeneous. Again, you sum that together, and then you'll get that outward current. And those two together then reflect the current. And the current is flow lines, not voltage. That current translates into the voltage change that you get with the action. Easier if I didn't tell you this, right? You just said, oh, okay, channels open, they close. But we're going to talk about ion channels today and how they operate. And this fundamentally makes sense in terms of thermodynamics. The idea that they just kind of me mechanistically open with voltage and stay open to the top of the active potential and they all do that, it really just can't work at the molecular level in terms of conformational changes, in terms of energetics. So each one coming together and summing up, that in the end really makes the most sense. Okay, just as a little sidebar, you probably have heard about this, you can isolate an individual ion channel. Um, it's a little practice, all right, but uh, this was done by um, Mayor Sockman uh, way back in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's a tremendous feat. To, to just the idea you could do this almost seemed, you know, like hubris. So took a, a wider glass pipette, so you took a regular glass electrode that people were using to poke into cells to measure the voltage across the membrane, because it's a little gap at the end, so it can measure the inside versus the outside. They said, well, we'll make it really blunt. In fact, they broke it. So you had this big glass thing, and they tried to just stick it on a nerve cell, okay, and record an ion channel. Well, that didn't work. And they said, well, let's try a muscle, because near the synapse where the, um, the nerve comes into the muscle, it's really rich with um, receptors. Those receptors are ion channels. The nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is an ion channel operated by acetylcholine. Okay, so I thought we'll try that. that didn't work. So then they had to come up with a bunch of tricks, one of which was to lightly um, protease, that is kind of clean up the surface of the muscle. They also took muscle from an animal where they took the, the nerve away. You take the nerve away, the nerve. Um, receptors increase, they upregulate, so now they have even more of them there. That still didn't work. So they thought, well, you need to make a really, really tight seal. And it ended up being real simple. They just took the, the tip of that blunt um, capillary, that glass pipe, and they just used the flame to clean it up, melt it down to polish it, and that did the trick. And the reason is now you have such a super, you know, um, fine surface, smooth surface, it brought down onto the membrane and you've applied suction and pulled it up so tight that this basically seals here. And fundamentally what's happening before is you were losing current around the mouth of the pipette, right? This current's going to go where it wants to. So now it has what's called a giga-ohm seal. It has extraordinarily high resistance. The higher the resistance, the smaller the little current or voltage change you can see. And you can, you can rig this up to a voltage clamp, 
for what's called a current plan, where you can just adjust and hold either how much current's flowing or where the voltage is. When they did that, they were able to start seeing these little blips. And that was an extraordinary feat. That was the first time, really, that a single molecule could be functionally measured in terms of its operation. Now we can do things with all kinds of molecules, but even though we've studied, people have been studying enzymes for decades on decades, there's no real case where you could see, say, one enzyme doing something by itself. This is the first time that something would be measured. So those are molecule responses, which is extraordinary. Okay, I want to get through this bit um, fairly quickly. Um, this is just another way of looking at what I just drew here in terms of activation. Again, this is a time, not distance, okay? But in terms of laying over the currents. In the end, I think um, this is a, maybe we won't see that. This is a little easier to see, those currents that underlie the ice potential. And this just gives some visual in terms of what might be happening, just plotting out the, the gates for the, um, the channels. And so see here, this is what I've shown with the arm thing, where you'll have an activation gate and an inactivation gate. So those are two different parts of the sodium channel. And you also have a potassium channel. So just to reinforce that, the gate that senses the voltage, so when the voltage changes, it swings open, and there's nothing else blocking, ions will flow at a really high rate because why? You have the, the ion gradients, right? You're just, you have a bucket up, up above and you just turn open the gate, okay? And then at the top of the exotensile, that in it, on the bottom, the inactivation gate, okay, it closes so ions can't flow, but that voltage gate is still sensing the voltage, right? So it's still open. It doesn't matter how you block it. This way or this way, it doesn't matter, right? So then you get all the way down to the undershoot and eventually everything resets and then you just have the activation gate closed. You reset it, so now at that low voltage, it will swing back again and open again, okay? Now, what was extraordinary about what Hodgkin Huxley did, this is back to our equivalence diagram, this is from their uh, journal physiology paper, but in this case, um, it, it might be labeled a little bit differently, but still in the end, I think it's almost the same, where you have your battery of your ion gradients, you have, um, those are the, the oh, I'm sorry, the potentials, and then the, the channels or resistances. At that stage, they didn't even know what channels were, okay? So the thing that, that was extraordinary, on top of doing these measurements and being able to say exactly who the ions are involved with the potential, sodium potassium, and when they happen, okay, they were able to then use the information where they adjusted the level of the voltage and also the sodium and potassium separately in different experiments so they could figure out exactly when, in terms of timing, the voltage change would occur based on the currents that they measured through their voltage plan. And that's right here. I know this equation was crazy, but it's really not that bad. So they were able to measure a current, okay, at a particular voltage, but they knew that that voltage was a change, all right? So this is just a simple partial um, differential, you know, the change in voltage over time. They could measure that. And then they basically looked at the change 
in terms of the driving force, where that voltage was relative to the equilibrium potential for, for potassium or sodium. And then they had the leak. Remember, they said they didn't know what the leak was. All right. So you put this all together. All they really needed to do then from Ohm's law is if they could see the current, they knew where the voltage change was, they could work back to the resistance. That is how the ion channels are functioning. Now it turns out that it's really simple because resistance is the reciprocal of conductance. Conductance is a little g, right? And those things in physics aren't any different. Resistance and conductance are the same thing. One is just one direction versus the other, two sides of the so they can model the whole thing. Then they put in inactivation values. That's what the N and M are, okay? I'm sorry, those are the, the functions in terms of the conductance change. The H is the, is the inactivation for sodium. And then we're able to calculate then with this equation exactly how an axe potential should look in, the, in this giant axon and compare it to exactly what they recorded. And the match was very, very close. So this is one of the first cases of physiological modeling based on understanding all the components in what, I know it's a long equation, but it's actually a fairly simple equation when you break it down. It really is Ohm's law with capacitance thrown in there. Because you have the current, you have the voltage, and then the G is the resistance, all right? In this case, Claude is the inverse. So it's, a, it's really in the end, a simple equation derived from Ohm's law allowed them to calculate out the exponential. So why did they not calculate these two all the way out? Well, they had a they had a simple computer, but it was in Cambridge, it was broke. And that simple computer, by the way, wasn't anywhere near as powerful as probably the earliest calculator you ever got when you were, you know, when you were young. I mean you're all still young, but when you're young, right? And this computer was the size of this room. So it was basically a giant calculator, it was broken, so this they they did by hand. So once they got one of them, they said, okay, we're good, and we'll show that the other ones, you know, are, are basically okay. We'll do it a couple more times. So to go back through the, the basic features, so when you go back to, to study this again, start here, and then test yourself and think about this. Number one, the action potential is unidirectional because it starts at the axon hillock and goes down the axon, okay? It's all or none because it's regenerative, the active membrane is basically regenerating, in, in a manner of speaking, or propagating, better term, the exponential all the way down the axon, so it stays the same. The threshold for achieving that, okay, that's the door. It's gotta go through the door, but the door is when the current for, the, for sodium is equivalent, is equal, in fact, exactly to potassium, and you get one more sodium and will take off. We just talked about the sequential changes in ion channel conductance, okay, so one term that I didn't talk about there, which is also in the text you run into, is permeability. Permeability is really sort of the inherent conductance of that channel, okay? So that differs between sodium and potassium channels in general terms. That's all we need to know, okay? So that permeability function is just how much, how, how well that channel can conduct. So if one's better than the other, for example, the voltage-gated sodium channel has terrific permeability for sodium, okay? That leak channel has kind of a crummy permeability. So there's your difference, all right? And then we talked about the refractory period, I think, um, interest of time, and we'll go back through some of the details there. So,
second to, actually we're doing pretty good with that. We'll move on in a second to our, um, oh, it's okay, uh, ion channel focus today. But I'd like to go through these challenge questions that we, uh, some of which we've already answered, that, um, that, that I posed. So, I asked you in um, the last session, did you think an extension could go backwards? And some of you had, you know, puzzled looks on your faces. And you remember what I told you, right? So at least you remember what I said, which is yes. But now you should understand, along that whole length of the, of the axon, okay, all the machinery's in there, all right? So in this case, we'll ignore myelination, right? That's, that's an adaptation that some of you overlay. But just take your garden variety regular axon, unmyelinated, you know, it conducts nicely, but, you know, we don't care. So from the axon hillock all the way down to the end, there's sodium and potassium channels, and they're just all in there. They're not arranged in any way. They're not hooked together, okay? They're just there. And they're over the whole surface of the cylinder, all right? This, I know it's just a line, but a, a cylinder. So the directionality depends on where it started. So all those inputs here are causing a change in the membrane potential, depolarizing the axon hillock. And once that happens, where's that current gonna go? It's gonna go this way. Now, there could be some current going back up into the cell body, but you don't get ax potentials in most cell bodies, right? So that doesn't matter. Plus, this is a big thing. This is a small space, so current flows forward, and then as it does, it's generating this action potential, and then that's propagated all the way along. If you started here, and current flows this way, it won't matter. The sodium and potassium channels are all mixed up, so what dictates that directionality, where it starts, and also the fact that the sodium channels, okay, those are the ones that and remember, okay, let me clear. The voltage-dependent sodium channels, okay, they're responding first, right? Wherever you start this, you know, there, there, or in the middle, okay, who's going to start first? The sodium channels. Once they start to trigger off, okay, they're going to they're going to generate current flowing away. Um, they're going to they're going to generate current going down the axon. Doesn't matter whether it's forward or backwards, and the ax potential will run backwards just fine. Question: Can that action going in the backwards direction only happen in vitro, or can it? Well, there's a pathological condition, so that's my last question. Does anybody have an idea what that pathological condition could be? I gave again about one kind. Certainly in vitro, if right. you stimulate down here, you can make it go backwards, and you can measure that. You can measure that quite easily. But it would take a pathological condition. So one could be a traumatic injury. You have a penetrating wound, okay, that nicked the membrane. What's going to happen if you nick the membrane? Well, here's what it looks like, right? Enough. You just, you know, you stabbed it, right? Okay, so now you made a big gash. There are ion gradients here that's gonna give a path for these to move. Right? 
they norm so those ions don't go across membranes normally, but if you give it a path, you punch a hole, they're gonna go, right? So what's gonna happen? Sodium and potassium will start to flow, and around this area, it will change the voltage to the membrane that's still intact. What's gonna happen? Sodium channels there are gonna respond, all right? And it will generate an active tension. Now, one of the problems is, what this will do is it will just chronically stimulate. The synapses, you know, when we talk about neural signaling and the timing, you know, they're all coordinated to generate X potentials when you want to signal there. Now this is uncontrolled. Ions are just moving like crazy, right? And this patch of membrane is probably going to go close to zero because it's really going to try to equilibrate. But that zero, okay, that's quite depolarized from the, the resting membrane potential. The sodium channels around there are going to respond. They're going to kick off some X potentials. But what are they going to do? What do we tell you about the, the state impact on inactivation? If you're away from the resting potential, it's going to start to drive inactivation. It's highest when you're at the top of the X potential. But inactivation will happen with a depolarized membrane. So with this, it'll, it'll fire off X potentials for a while, but then the sodium channels will just all inactivate, and it will stop. Because inactivation is low, it's basically zero at the resting potential, and it's really high at the peak, the equilibrium potential for sodium, but there's an inactivation process that can start even well below the inactivation, uh, the equilibrium potential for sodium. That's not like the magic line. It's just if you're away from that, that low or zero inactivation state, as you depolarize, that helps to drive inactivation. So fortunately, that will shut down. Because if that potentials are going the wrong way, it will mess up that neuron. And it turns out there are processes to reseal that membrane unless if it's just nicked. If the axon's completely cut, that's a more serious problem. But it turns out in the periphery, urinary cells can regenerate their axon. So the other, the, the middle question was, what about the middle? And you'll get action potentials going either way, because the current will flow in either direction. Now, we did talk about this. this So now we have a case where, as I, as I hinted about before, I'm going to just take this off. I think you got it. Where you now have an exponential generated, okay, and you're going up. So this would be near equal, not exactly, but near the equilibrium potential for potassium. Sorry for you in the back. I'll make it big. And then it's getting up close to the equilibrium potential for sodium. Right? Sodium, and we're going to say that that's, that's, that's where the exponential normally would go. So what I told you is that for most cells in the nervous system, your garden variety typical nerve cell, the sodium channels basically are timed to inactivate fully and completely at the top of the exponential. I've already given you a hint from the question before is that some of them are starting to inactivate beforehand because as you get away from this position, okay, where inactivation of sodium channels is low, right, that means that gate swung open, 
the gate starts, some of the, some of the, the sodium channels, the gate closes, 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 and then they're all closed at the top, okay? Now, what happens if that was really delayed? Remember, this is normally gonna come right back down, you have your undershoot, and this is like a millisecond, right? What did I say in there? Say two seconds. So if this is one to two milliseconds, all right, now we're talking about 2,000 times longer. I'm not gonna draw that, okay? I have to go out in the hallway and then some. All right. So now, everything else is fine. Really, the other thing that's fine are the potassium responses, right? The potassium channels. So now you're up here, it normally would come down, but it's now gonna take seconds to come back down. What's gonna happen to this actual potential? Well, it's not gonna stay up here for very long. Why? Because remember, right at the end, at the peak of action potential, two things normally happen. Sodium channel inactivation, but you're getting close to the, the, to the really strong upswing of the potassium going out. In fact, it's gonna be reaching its peak a little after that. So this might stay up here a little bit, but potassium going out is gonna try to drive it back down. But where's it gonna go? Remember, sodium inactivation hasn't happened. So it's still here. But potassium is starting to drive it down, right? Actually, I didn't draw this actually. I meant to have this more accentuated. It's gonna be slow, right? Because it's kind of fighting the sodium, right? And it's gonna go right in between these two guys. Why? Because both of these are smart when they're both robust, right? Both going, both open, you're gonna have an average between the sodium flux going in and the potassium going out, right? We have no average when you shut off this with an activation. This just takes over, right? So this is basically, you know, what I've drawn is sort of an inverse driving but eventually it's going to do this, and then I'll put a hash mark, say two seconds later, then, all right, the sodium, the potassium channels will inactivate, okay? I'm sorry, the sodium channels will inactivate. So let's say this is, this is two seconds later, right? So they eventually do inactivate. Then the potassium will drive it back down, and you'll get a regular undershoot. So you get an active potential with a long plateau. And that plateau is because sodium's still going in, potassium started to go out, so it's trying to drive it back down, and it's basically averaged out. And you see action potentials like this. You see cases where they're not very common, there's certain types of cells where you have this intermediate level, this plateau, because the sodium channels are taking a really long time to inactivate. And that's going to give you a very different signal because now you have a depolarized state for a long time. This is only a millisecond, that very robust drive on the synapses, but this is going to have a long-lasting impact on the synapses, isn't it? Would there be a little bit of movement because of the the uh, potassium channels that bleed through slowly and the, and the leak? Those are so small. So again, these oh. are so big that they're just swamped out. And remember, they never change. So whatever was happening here or here or here or here, they're all the same, right? All that dictates this is the equilibrium potentials 
and the equilibrium potentials are dictated by the ion gradients, right? The ratio of outside to in. So that position, you could you could calculate quite accurately where it would go, knowing the equilibrium potential for potassium and sodium for a particular cell. Okay. You could literally calculate that number accurately. And when you do, and then you measure it just electrophysiologically, they match. So if this is now extreme number three. So now potassium channels don't work. What's going to happen? Well, we already said it. You know, the other pathways for the ions are minimal. So now potassium's not working. All right. What's going to happen? The axis is going to well, maybe a different color. So now at the peak of the atom potential, okay, it's going to be up there for a while, right? Is it going to go back down to the equilibrium potential? For, now this is a case where the sodium channels are operating normally, okay? So at the peak there, they're still going to inactivate. But the potassium, the voltage-gated potassium current isn't working. Who's gonna who's gonna do anything? Sodium channels are out of the picture. The voltage-gated potassium channels aren't working. Uh, but who's left? We do have the leak, and we have the constitutive small, slow, and steady potassium conductance. All right. So that's still working. So eventually, after a really long time, because it's slow and steady, that Resting potassium conductance will eventually bring it back down. I may have made this ridiculously long, but forget the, the hatch mark there. So that's, you can demonstrate the slow and steady in an artificial situation where you can completely blocked or inactivated or in one way or, one way or another removed the voltage-gated potassium, all right? So this will drive up fine, and what's holding this here, remember, is that slow and steady potassium conductance, which never responds to voltage, and the leak, which doesn't respond to voltage. So that's held here, right? So now you activate, and you get a perfect upswing to your act potential. They sodium channels inactivate, and then that, that slow and steady potassium conductance will eventually bring it back down, and it's going to go back down to here because the position is dictated by the ion gradients, by the equilibrium. It'll actually, I don't know if I have it here, but it should go, you know, because the leak is there, so basically just go back to the normal resting potential. All right, we've already talked. Um, there we go. So, I don't know if I have to draw anything. I think we already answered the last two. So, um, in, in, in the module lecture, do you remember the thing that was used there's a pharmacological tool called neurotoxin that showed that sodium influx is, is, based, is the basis for the upswing of it. I just want the name of that. I didn't say there was going to be a quiz today, but <laughs> this, this is a spot quiz. So that's tetrodotoxin or TTX. Tetrodotoxin is really an extraordinary toxin in terms of how 
specific is. Usually with any kind of pharmacological tool, we never say it's specific. It's selective. This is an exception. It's so specific for a particular type of sodium channel in the membrane. And then we, the six we answered today with that, that last set of um, uh, slides. So, okay. So we're going to talk about ion cells and excitability. Before I do, are there any questions? I, I, yeah. I noticed uh, we haven't talked much yet. You're probably going to get into more about the signals that come from the dendrites. But it's the axon potential is initiated basically by a, a threshold number of dendritic signals coming into it? So all those synapses going on those dendrites, and some of them go on the cell body, okay? They make these little voltage changes, and they, and, they, and they add together, they sum together. So some of them subtract, because they're inhibitory, some are excited. So Dr. Pitts is gonna go over this, so he's gonna talk about synapse, basically integration, so that at a particular window of time, when the excitation wins out over inhibition, and that voltage change that really is sensed across all that membrane, but down at that axon hillock, and it gets over threshold, you get an activation. So he'll, he'll go over that. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we're talking about axons and excitability of ion channels, and he'll get into the real cool stuff, which is the, uh, the synaptic potential. All right, so. So let's talk about ion channels. This actually um, is not going to be that long, but I want to make sure um, you understand um, basic concepts here. And there are a couple that are really very interesting about these really highly selective voltage-gated ion channels. So like I said, I think much earlier in the series, you know, sodium channels don't conduct other ions, all right? Not calcium, not potassium. Potassium channels don't conduct sodium or calcium, okay? So, uh, and then fluoride doesn't matter. So this is showing in, in you know, diameter, actually is the little spheres, the size of these ions. So sodium is a small, okay? Calcium is only really a little bit bigger, okay? Potassium uh, is a pretty good size. Fluoride is quite enormous. Now those are the bare ions. Bare ions do not exist in nature, in your body, okay? So I'm gonna give you a little hint right now. They're hydrated. So the water that's ordered, there's a water shell around all your ions. And it isn't just sort of hanging out there. It actually, because of you know dipole interaction of water, it's oriented in a particular way, and there's so many waters that are basically aligned around your ions. Now they're not covalent, they're just, they're interacting with physical forces, and they're highly dynamic. So one water might be there, but they're, they're really kind of coming on and off. But on the average, each of these ions are have a hydration sphere or hydration shell, okay? So let's go, like to we sort of start with the basic features list, and then we'll end with this, just like we've been doing all along. So it turns out that sodium and calcium channels are formed from a single transcript, okay? But they have four domains, and those Domains have been, through evolution, replicated, okay? So the parallel to that are the potassium channels where all, I, if you look back in phylogeny, you see the ion channels start out as multi-subunit. And by and large, they are, for the voltage-dependent channels, they are four, the rule four, okay? So there's, in the case of potassium channel, 
there are now four transcripts making four basically identical subunits that line up around each other. Sodium and calcium um, uh, channels basically took those subunits, though, and then linked them together as domains. So they're replicated sequences, but they're concatenated. They're, they're all in one piece. So sodium and calcium make a single, a single protein, but they have these domains that function really in the same way as the potassium channels that make, you know, basically one cylinder out of, and then another, another, and have four cylinders that make up, in a manner speaking, okay, the barrel that ends up being the ion channel, okay. In all voltage-gated channels, there is, as you've already alluded to, but you would, I mean, this is guessed at for a long time because they respond to voltage, and inherently in the sequence, it's clear there's something responding to it, so it was conjectured, and now it's been exquisitely identified. There are sequences that respond to that voltage, and we call them voltage <coughs> sensors, okay? And they're at the periphery. Um, and when that, when that sensor um, experiences a change in voltage, they go, and basically they, were, they, they are sitting there at rest, at the resting potential, and when you're away from the resting potential, so you have a synaptic potential, or you have an X potential, so it starts to depolarize towards zero, okay? Then those sensors respond to that, and they induce a, a conformation change in the ion channel to change the gating of that ion channel, basically, to open it up. Ions that cross and go through the pore of the, uh, the ion channel, we will see, are initially hydrated, so they have that water, the water is lost, and the water is regained. And the amazing thing about these little machines is that the pore perfectly mimics the normal, correct hydration sphere for that ion, and that's what dictates specificity. The ion channel has evolved to mimic exactly for that ion what its water sphere would be like, but without using water, with using amino acids. And that's why other ions can't go through. Because you would think, right, potassium channel would be able to pass sodium and calcium just fine. Remember they're dinky and the potassium was a lot bigger? Same even with the chloride channel. Chloride channel, you think, oh, they're, they're terrible. They should allow anything through because, you know, that's a, that's a big sphere it's got to go through. No, it's all based on the ability of that ion to interact with the ion core. That was the punchline, by the way, for this whole lecture. All right. Uh, and then we'll talk about inactivation. So let's look at some pictures. Those pictures are fun. So this is showing some of the earliest work resolving the voltage um, gated. You'll hear the term voltage gated from me. You'll see often voltage dependent, right? Because it depends on voltage to work. Voltage operated, okay? I like gated because the gating is how things work. So um, this is a side view. The, and don't worry about the orientation of the membrane, but the top view is a cool one. So this is a potassium channel. Remember, it has four different subunits, so they're color-coded here for convenience. So these each are the subunits and sticking out like paddles, which was predicted from biophysics before it was seen, are the voltage sensors. So they're kind of they're kind of hanging out like this, all right? And then when voltage happens, you can see because of their extended structure, if this is moving, it's going to move the inside. 
And that's a picture here. So you can see that when you get the, don't worry about it saying hyperpolarized. I should have blanked out the hyperpolarized membrane, normal resting potential. Now you depolarize, you get a voltage sensation. You can see significant changes from the side in terms of the, the structure. We're going to see it in action. And then this was basically pictures drawn before the structure was known in terms of the so, we see the same thing with the sodium channel. It has panels as well. They're sticking out. They sense the voltage. Those voltage sensors are in particular sequences. Now, it turns out across the membrane, all right, when you have a closer look, you couldn't see as well before, is by and large, the structure is almost in, invariably alpha helix, little coarse screws. Okay. And you see that for most transmembrane proteins. Alpha helices are the most convenient structure to thread through a membrane. Almost all membrane proteins, not all of them, but almost all of them, basically the transmembrane domain is made up of these alpha helices. So buried in those alpha helices are sequences, particular sequences, all right, that sense the voltage, and then they're linked in to the core alpha helix structure, which basically you can also think of, again, as these sort of pegs or staves of a barrel that make up uh, the barrel, the interior of which is the core. So looking down, you can see somewhat cross-section these ion, these, these um, alpha helices, but they're really pointing in and out in this case. So this is showing a sequence of the opening, okay? And it turns out that the, the ion channel goes through a number of different states, resting states and activated states, but we don't care. We're gonna just see what happens for real. So based on these dynamic measurements of these of actual ion channels, okay, we can see that this green part here is the, the main part of the voltage sensor, and see how far it swings. It's swinging way is actually not just going in and out, but it's, it's, it's moving out and over in a very dramatic way in the plane of the membrane. Okay. So imagine this is in the plane of the membrane and it's swinging. So it's causing a very large conformational change throughout the whole of the channel. And this is just showing one. Remember there are four of these, but this made it simple to show one. We'll do it again because it's fun. All right, so there you go. This one's even cooler look down on the top and look what happens. So that see that that green? It's the sensor. So in it it has charged sequences that are set up so that they are perfectly in tune with the voltage change that occurs across that membrane. Alright. There is some sensing by other parts of the molecule because of voltage, but it's very, very minor. Really what's driving this here is not this whole thing, but the, the paddle, but it's coming along for, for the ride. Okay, so what that, that one is swinging and it's pulling everybody around. And then look what happened here. And this is really what's happening. Think about a gate, all right? It's not really a gate. It's more like a diaphragm opening in an old-fashioned camera. Some of you have seen like an old, you know, 35-millimeter camera where you look at the, you know, the diaphragm opening up. See how it swings open? 
So this is in a closed state and it opens up basically, and there's paddle on the other three sites not shown here, basically expanding that pore. So the gate isn't, is not this. This is, this is from the textbook. The gate is really opening up like that, okay? But it's opening, it's hard to appreciate, it's opening up the whole line structure. So here's a side view again, and this was originally all predicted by biophysics, and then once the um, potassium channel was crystallized, which was an extraordinary feat. So Rod McKinnon took at Rockefeller University, uh, wanted to do this, and everybody said, don't do it. You're gonna waste your time, it can't be done. And he was somebody who just didn't take no for an answer. So he came up with a number of extraordinary tricks, one of which was to crystallize the channels, basically with lipid that mimicked the membrane. Not a membrane, but it just had lipid bound all around it. And he made a few mutations, was able to crystallize this in pretty short order for his solution of potassium channel received the Nobel Prize. Anyway, what he discovered by looking had already been predicted. One was that this, this diaphragm here is what's called a selectivity filter, all right, that's linked up to the, to the voltage-operated gate, which is really the power. So what was really surprising is that he saw first, again, it was predicted that they could look at the ion bound versus the unbound bound state, and an activated, it could mimic the activated state pharmacologically versus the, the resting state. You could see that as ions were moving in to the, the channel, okay? Originally they were, they were, they were hydrated, they, but right at the mouth, they lose their hydration, and then these little red bits in here, they're, they're wrapping all the way around as a cylinder. Those are the little side chains of amino acids that are mimicking exactly that ion's hydration sphere. And I thought you could, you could make predictions, and this was done by mutation as well, in terms of the binding energy. So it turns out when the ions start to come in, the first set of hydration spheres that bind are really strong, high affinity. And then as the ions start to migrate down, they reach a state where, at least at the very end, where the hydration is there, but it's weaker. So they're bound in tightly, and it's weaker at the other end, and that's a perfect recipe for conduction. So, and it's actually a continuous feature that there were exactly four ions bound on the inside of the channel. Okay, which was predicted from biophysics. In fact, there was an extraordinary scientist who drew a picture that looked just like this, having no molecular information. And Rod was really quite astounded that when he went back and, and determined this, which did match perfectly. Um, but at any rate, as it's starting to move, you can see that it's basically successively going to weaker and weaker binding. So it's kind of being jammed in, and that's allowing ions to flow through. But the thing that was a surprise that all these ion channels, in the middle of the ion channel, okay, toward the exit, has this vestibule full of water, and those ions are then rehydrated, okay? So the red here is supposed to be the hydration. So they've lost it here, they bind, and they get rehydrated, and then they go on their merry way. You think, well, they could just be spit off the other side. And it's not completely clear why there's this little vestibule that's full of water in the middle of the channel so that they rehydrate there, kind of like, they come out, they rehydrate, and then they take off. 
little bit of a mystery. But nonetheless, this is extremely efficient that most ion channels allow something like 100 million ions to flux per second. So they're extraordinarily efficient. Remember, that all depends on the ion gradient. Okay. Nothing new here. So uh, you get the same arrangement in the sodium channel. Thought, okay, maybe this was just a, a, a thing with, so the first potassium channel was actually the shaker potassium channel that was from Drosophila. Okay. Shaking movement. Well, I thought, okay, they looked at other potassium channels to see this vestibule. Maybe it's just potassium channels. No, look at sodium channels. There's that vestibule that here that's labeled as the central cavity. It's the same deal. So when you look back at the, the, the interaction of the sodium with the um, with the ion core, same deal, same arrangement, selectivity filter of this vestibule, and then you have the voltage gated. Um, confirmation changes is occurring. Okay. Now this is a bit fanciful. So what about that inactivation gate? So the early work with potassium channels showed that there was this sequences. A lot of this was done by mutation. Okay, so already doing mutation of potassium or the sodium poor, you could figure out which amino acids were critical for making that hydration sphere. So that was known. But then it was clear that there was this other sequence that you could actually just clip off with the protease and you'd lose an activation. Okay, so this was done both for the sodium channel and the potassium channel. You could just, there's this, it, it was weird. It's, it's like the sequence is sort of hanging out there. And it was clear that it was. So there's, this is a little fanciful, but it's kind of a globular end. And then a, a, a linker and found that this basically was sort of hanging out there. It's different from the voltage centers, right? It's, it's hanging out. And then when you got to the voltage that drop that drives an activation, okay, away from rest, then basically this globular element was inserted and plugged up before. I mean, I know it looks like a, a stopper on a drain, right? But from above, maybe it's just the view from Australia. At any rate, uh, it, that seems to be a basic feature. The details differ between voltage-gated channels, but by and large, there's a sequence, and it's, again, so you don't have this anymore. You have something hanging out here, and then it's like, you know, a plug that's being jammed in. Still works, right? It's still going to stop the flow of ions, even if the, if the channel is completely opened up, then it could be normally pass. So it's called this ball and chain idea. So it's clearly that the, the inactivation gate is physical, whereas the uh, so inactivation, the plug, whereas the activation really in the end is is not. There's no there's no little gate there. Okay, it's just rotating open. Now I'm going to show you this. I don't want to to really spend a lot of time worrying about this, but. Fundamentally, there are two things that we know about ion channels, by and large. Okay. So if we look at the current, so that's the I up there, and this is by voltage, so we call these current voltage relationships. Okay. The only thing I want you to take away from that is over a large voltage range, you can see the ions flowing either direction. So for sodium, you can do that for potassium. So the only thing that dictates directionality the ion channel is the ion gradient. So artificially, 
you can actually have the ions flow in either direction. And that fits again with there not being some kind of binding gate, all right, but that you can just rotate open that pore. Now, I don't know how this was reconciled with this vestibule where you get hydration, but nonetheless, it works. Ion channels, basically that selectivity is inherent and it's not directional in most ion channels. I told you there's always going to be an exception, right? Everything I'm going to tell you is an exception. There are some channels that only let the ions go in one direction. But the voltage-gated sodium channels that we know and love for the action potential, is both the sodium and potassium channels, they allow current to flow in either direction, which is plotted here. So we're back to our features, and we can wrap up and open up your questions. So again, this is your reference sheet. So again, sodium and calcium channels. We haven't talked about calcium channels. Calcium channels are, are much more similar to sodium channels, as you might think, because they have similar kind of gene structure. They have these four domains. Um, you can actually mutate the pore of the sodium channel and make it a calcium channel. And you can take the calcium channel and mutate the pore to make it like a sodium channel, and it becomes a sodium channel, which was a terrific demonstration about the specificity of that gating through that pore. But nonetheless, four domains, they are basically, you know, this is gene replication that then was concatenated into one single protein, potassium channels four, individual subunits. Now, each of these channels have other subunits that interact with them and regulate them, okay? They are called zero auxiliary um, subunits. You might run into these in the text. You can read about them. We're not gonna talk about them. There might be something that might be of interest to you to, to delve into on your own, but we're gonna keep it simple. Talk about the voltage sensors, or basically these paddles sticking out, okay? And then you saw how they drive remarkable conformational change to open up the pore. That is the, the, um, the activation gate, as we call it. The ions are normally hydrated, but they lose their sphere of hydration as they enter into the, the pore. And most of the, and the, and, and our sodium potassium channels for the, for the action potential, doesn't matter which way they go. But by and large, the ion gradient is going to dictate it. So sodium is going to go in because you have this huge gradient, right? One way versus potassium the other way. So the inside mimics it. The channels um, we already talked about, um, that they can go in either direction. Is that potentially happening during the action potential locally? There's a, you can't predict that at certain points in time that might be happening. We don't care about that. It's more a demonstration of the selectivity of the channel is inherent in that form. And then the inactivation gates are separate structures, okay? And by and large, in, in a manner of speaking, across the voltage-gated channels operate basically as a plug, okay? Question? You can only have that, but I want to make sure you have questions. You can only have one one molecule at a time and going through there because it's like a key. Well, you saw that there are four in the pore. Yeah. So at any given time, there are four in the pore. So, but yeah, when it's kind of like one comes in, another one gets bounced right. out. You know, kind of like those ball. I don't know if you've seen that. It was, it was kind of a 
a silly novelty thing in the, in the, in the 70s, right, where you had these balls lined up where you pick the ball up and you know, hit, the, hit a series of balls and the other one would be ejected. That was a physics demonstration. So it's not quite like that, but by and large, when it comes in, the other one's ejected. But that, that then forces them down the line. So in essence, as they enter the, to answer the question, one ion is entering the core at the at a time, and one is exiting at a time. Four voltage-gated ion channels. The receptors that are also channels, the ligand-gated ion channels, or something like the acetylcholine receptor, when acetylcholine binds to that receptor and opens a channel, they're different. Okay. Entirely different. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to say how they're different. I don't want to add more information that you don't need to know yet. Okay. Other questions? Yeah, okay. How do the voltage-gated voltage sensor sequences detect the voltage? So the question is, how do the voltage sensors detect the voltage change? So they're lined up in the membrane, and by and large, you know, the, these these were um, these proteins have they have a certain amount of charge anyway. But they are lined up in a particular lipid environment. Okay, they're they're more they're actually in kind of a loop in the membrane, okay. and they're linked to that paddle. And so you can it's been measured. You can see that shift. That shift is what was measured. And so they have a charge arrangement. So when the voltage goes from you know strongly minus on the inside, and now you depolarize. They shift that whole sequence on each one. Only each four paddles shifts in the membrane. So because it's a, lip, a loop and it's in the lipid, and because of its nature, without giving you all the bloody details, okay, they're amphipathic, so they have a charge um, sequence on one side. And that will shift dramatically in the membrane okay, to cause a conformational change. The other parts of the protein move a little bit. But otherwise, they're pretty static, and they're heavily bound by in interacting with lipid, which helps to stabilize them. And the lipid does have an impact on the gating. Okay? But that sequence is free enough to move in the, in, in the plane of the membrane. And so you can see it shift. And as you mutate this, the key residues there, then you lose the voltage sensor. Or you can delete it. You can also take that voltage sensor. As we know, you know everything's been clone, right? Take that sequence, you can put it in another protein that might go undergo a different kind of conformational change, and that voltage sensor will drive the conformational change in whatever's downstream. So that's been used to make optical voltage detectors. So now you have something where the, it's a, a fluorescent protein, and the fluorescence will change by conformation. You can use the voltage sensor, and that's that's what's been exploited in opto, what's called optogenetics, where you can now see the voltage change as a fluorescent change. So you have this other protein, which is a bacterial or an allergic protein, and if it undergoes a conformational change, the fluorescence will change. So going back now, at least 10, 12 years, people thought, oh, let's put a voltage sensor on there, the sodium channel voltage sensor. It causes a conformational change, and so we can not only Record electrically X potentials, we can now see them optically. And they're so good now, they're so fast that you can resolve an X 
potential at very high speed just by light without having to use an electrode. So it's all the action is in that sequence. So again, remarkable. But you saw it. So originally it was thought it just kind of moved up and down in the plant membrane, and the old textbooks would show that. But we now see that it rotates, and that whole paddle shifts, and it causes that large, basically, it's, it's basically shifting, lat not just vertically, but laterally that those subunits, and that's why they rotate over. Other questions? Yes? Can you explain again how ion channels detect the, their specific ions? It's, it all boils down to that hydration sphere. So the hydration sphere, so even though sodium, calcium, potassium, chloride, they're all different. Sodium, calcium are pretty similar, aren't they? So here's an example. So why wouldn't calcium go through the sodium channel? It turns out that sodium actually can be a little sloppy with the calcium channel. They're really close. But each one of those hydration spheres is, is different, how it's oriented. And so the pore mimics it perfectly. So the ion starts to bind into the pore, and it works from either direction. As it starts to bind in, okay, then it loses the hydration sphere. It's basically exchanged for the pore, you know, the mimic. The pore has a mimic, you know, it's mimicking exactly the hydration sphere. So as it comes in, the water shed off, and that only works without ion efficiently. Sodium, sodium calcium, you think they could just pass through. They're under normal conditions, they're extraordinarily efficient. If you take all your calcium away, a little bit of sodium will go through the calcium channel, just a teeny amount. So if 100 million go through per second, biophysics allows you to measure you know, down to really small signals, a few will get through. Otherwise, and that's still really pretty good fidelity. So, but not potassium and chloride. So with each one of those ion channels for the voltage-gated ones, I keep saying that, only those are specific for individual ions. The ligated ion channels, the ones that are lactobacillus, say like biastacoline, they're really slow. They don't work that way. They have a selectivity, but it's a different thing. So it's, it's basically, you know, the poor mimicking. Remember the word mimic. That's a good word for the, for the first exam to remember. Of your keywords. You're mimicking that ion channel. That was predicted and what was observed really made all this sense in terms of how conduction works. sensors on the on the um, the different ion channels are a little bit different. Okay. They're more they're a little bit different. They're more similar in terms of homology, which is really a genetic term uh, we used to talk about sequence. Um, they do show a lot of sequence similarity. Okay. Between the cations, sodium, calcium, potassium. Chloride's different. But um, they all seem to operate the same way in terms of this paddle business. Any other questions? Yes, go ahead. Um, for the inactivation dudes, um, I know the figure you gave said that 
the volunteer plugs the otherwise open passing channel, mm -hmm. does that volunteer apply to other types of channels? So you have something, yes. Again, the simple answer is yes. Where you have an activation. Okay. So it turns out we know, obviously, that you know there's sodium channel inactivation, that's a big deal. Calcium channels do inactivate. Chloride channels are a little different. So but by and large, you have something analogous in each situation where you have this extended sequence that basically blocks if it doesn't actually fit in and plug. So the potassium channel is clear. This thing fits just right into the exit, uh, one side of the channel and blocks it. But one way or another, it's the ion channel flow is blocked by this separate sequence that basically, you know, it basically acts in a manner speaking It's hard to draw. 